If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. this was a long game, this was a long war, they knew the walls weren't going to come tumbling down because people read novels, but what they wanted was something that was corrosive um, of the official ideas. That was Peter Finn talking about the CIA's efforts to change the course of the Cold War by smuggling bad literature into the USSR. So he said, oh, he said, yes, 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 oh, we shall... um, to your country. You would all be Germans. And that was Dolly Shepard recalling the build-up to the First World War. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good news agents or you can subscribe from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest offers. And we have digital editions available for the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, the iPad, iPhone, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The author Boris Pasternak famously had his 1957 novel, Dr Zhivago, banned from publication in his home country of the USSR. 
Yet copies were still smuggled in from elsewhere in the world, and it became a huge success on the black market. For their new book, The Zhivago Affair, Peter Finn and Petra Cuvet gained access to previously secret CIA files that show that American intelligence services were even more involved in this smuggling operation than has previously been thought. Our books editor, Matt Elton, met up with Peter and Petra in London to find out more about an extraordinary effort to shape the course of the Cold War. Well, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post in 2007. It was based on a Russian writer who claimed that the CIA won the Nobel Prize for Pasternak. That later proved to be incorrect. But I was contacted by a Dutch journalist who introduced me to Petra. We started to correspond by email. I happened to go to The Hague for uh, when Karadich was arrested and brought to the International Tribunal in The Hague, and we met and talked, and then it just one thing led to another, and eventually we decided we'd work together. Fantastic. How long ago was that? That was in the summer of 2008, right? When okay. we first met. Yes. When we first okay. met, okay. yeah. Deciding to do the book probably came 18 months later. Right. Yeah, in okay. 2008. 10, yes. in December. Okay. Yeah. The book tells a fantastic story that I think many of our readers might not be aware of. So perhaps talk about the background to it a little bit. Just how important were books in the Cold War? Mm. That's something for you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they were a significant element of the Cold War. I wouldn't say, you know, uh, they were a key part of American policy, but they were a significant part of the policy of one of the divisions of the CIA, which was the International Organizations Division, which mostly ran this through the Cold War. Now, other divisions, including the Soviet Russia Division, did individual projects and had their own small book programs, and this was one of those. But the CIA essentially set up two publishing companies in New York, front companies. One was called Free Europe Press, it was an arm of Radio Free Europe. The other was the Bedford Publishing Company, which was an arm of Radio Liberty, and they stocked these people with people from the radios who were made aware that the CIA was funding this, even though most people within the organization might not have known that at the lower levels. Mm. They essentially spent millions of dollars translating books and printing them. They secured the rights in a legitimate way from... Um, companies in New York and companies here in London and mm -hmm. elsewhere. With Free Europe, they mailed them into Eastern Europe. That was mostly their technique. That didn't work so much with the Soviet Union, so they gave them to Soviet citizens who came here, gave them to Western tourists going there, had them in the American Embassy, had them at the big department store in Helsinki where all the Westerners went to buy their stuff before moving into the Soviet Union. Um, it went on for decades. Mm. And that fact was, was suspected at the time, but it wasn't actually known for definite until quite recently, is that right? Uh, I think, widely known, I suppose. I think it began to be known after the, the fall 60s. of the... Yeah. Well, it was known, but the first real writing about it in any serious way took place after the fall of the, Cold War, uh, of the Wall and then the fall of the Soviet Union when some of the people involved in the program began to write. Just how much was literature controlled in you know, Soviet Russia at the time? Well, that's very hard. I, I, I'm still you know, trying to find or to get a good image what the censor was. Mm. Most of the time these were just colleague writers. These were people that were you know, editors and said, well, I wouldn't write that. 
you know, just advise it. Yeah. And, um, and also, lots of writers had an, a self-censor, an inner censor. They knew what to write and not to write. Mm. But yet, you know, after, um, after Stalin's death and after the secret speech of Khrushchev, there was this kind of new cultural, um, well, this new atmosphere of, of, of uh, cultural freedom. And people were not, you know, they were trying out and they were kind of defying the censorship. So Pasternak, when he finished his novel, that was in, in, at the end of 1955, you know, at the beginning was really hopeful because he thought, well, maybe, you know, I can publish it. Yes. Yeah. So you thought he generally thought there was a chance that he would be able to publish this book? In the beginning, yes, of course, because he submitted it. Mm. But then he didn't hear anything back, you know, for six months. And then he was giving up hope. Yes. And it was also, you know, it was very, very strange. Um, um, Soviet cultural politics were, were swinging in between thaws and freezes. So it was very unclear. Mm. So, but at the end, he said, you know, um, they're never going to publish it. <laughs> right, and I think he always had a certain level of skepticism. So what impression do we get of his character from this, from this story? Um, we differ a little. Okay. <laughs> I think. <laughs> you first. <laughs> well, I, I think he's a very complex man. That's the first thing. Um, he had extraordinary self-confidence in his own place and role as an artist. Um, and I think that gave him a certain amount or a great deal. He was able to draw on that for some of the courageous decisions he made throughout his life. Um, I think all great artists probably have this sense of themselves. Um, and that can at mo moments uh, tip over into arrogance, even though often with Pasternak there was this kind of false mo you know, modesty about him. Okay. Um, clearly he, he had a messy private life. Um, with essentially two families um, and uh, I think the most important thing to him personally by the end of his life was this novel and that it reach as wide an audience as possible and he was willing to do many things others would not even including you know risking um, he was willing to take risks for his family, regardless of whether his family wanted him to take those risks or not. Yeah. Certainly yeah. his wife did not. No. Um, no. Yeah, but about messy life, of course he had a messy life, but it was a very, these were very messy times, mm -hmm. you know? So I don't want to judge him there. So he made a mistake with his first marriage, second marriage was much better, it was a wife that supported him in his vision. But then, you know, they had their ordeals, it was very hard, she, she lost a son and she didn't want to be intimate anymore with him and then he started to wonder, you know, and then there was this incredible, amazing, sexy woman and he fell in love. And I'm the last one to judge anyone in that kind of period of history in, in Russia mm. because, you know... Oh, I, I'm not judging him. No, I'm, I know, I'm just I know you don't judge, but I just yeah. want to stick up a little for him okay, because, yeah. you know, I'm from the Netherlands, I was born after the, the Second World War, what do I know, mm. you know? Yeah. And these well, people went through revolutions, wars and right. famine and, and the Stalin terror. They mm. were traumatized. You've got all this turmoil going on. Uh, for years and years and years, but somehow it seems to me that this one man's character, his self-belief, is massively important to this particular story, just in terms of him wanting this book to get out there. Is, is that fair to say, do you think? Yes, I okay. think he had an extraordinary 
self-belief uh, and belief in the worth of this novel, even when others um, quite openly questioned what he was doing and how His well he was doing. Yes, yeah, he called it my final and madness and, and happiness. happiness mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I think that carried him through the writing of the book and then the turmoil over its publication. For people who haven't read the book that he wrote, um, what was it about it that made authority so uncomfortable? What did it do that made them want to... Well, there were three things. It was apolitical. There, was, there were, of course, religious elements in it. And it was, you know, um, saying, well, um, artistic integrity or... Um, the individual opinion is more important than collectivism or uniformity. Mm. And that was something that was a heresy, you know, that was not good. Yeah. And when you read the letter that the five editors from the board of Novi Mir sent him, uh, you know, they begin the letter by saying that it's, it's the soul of this book, it's the tenor of this book. Nothing about this book can be fixed through edits or cuts. Okay. It's permeated with an attitude that we don't like, um, and and they felt that there was a, a an unwillingness to accept the October Revolution and all that flowed from it. Right. So it exists out of its time as a whole, rather than being specifically. It in was some alien passages. more. Okay. It was just alien. They mm -hmm. felt uncomfortable with it. That was mostly it. And when he he you know gave it to a Western uh, publisher. They felt exposed. Okay. That's it. They've just felt exposed. Hey, we haven't read the book very thoroughly. We didn't say yes. And here you go. You just give it away. Yeah. And here we are. You know, they felt really exposed. By it. I don't think anyone had written a book quite like this in Soviet times, which explained the reaction both internally and in the West. So internally, they were recoiling from this new thing that they were reading and in the West the reaction of people like Isaiah Berlin and others was and even within CIA was this is so fresh and original and uh, compelling that we'll we're completely captivated by it and whatever its prose failings or narrative failings we don't care it's just such a new experience and so it gave them this chance to kind of start this campaign just this one book they could start this new campaign with, they felt? Well, I, I, I think they felt um, it was a gift from the Soviets because it was banned. I mean, there, there could have been a very different history if the Soviet Union had decided we'll have a small 5,000 limited print run. History could have taken a very different course. Mm. Um, but because it appeared in Italy in translation, it immediately began to draw critical acclaim and press attention, um, which brought it in front of the CIA, and then they thought, this is something we should work with. And the book program at that moment was pretty embryonic. I mean, it had started, it was in fits and starts, they were trying to figure out how they would do it. Mm -hmm. um, but the Soviet-Russia division within CIA decided they would do this book themselves. They would not. It would not be run by the International Organizations Division. Right. Okay. Um, do we get a sense of how Pasternak saw Stalin and vice versa? Well, there's different stories about that, uh, especially how he survived, you know, the terror. But there was. Uh, it was true that he um, he translated Georgian poetry, and you know, Stalin seemed to have liked that very much. 
And there was also the fact that um, after uh, Stalin's wife committed suicide, he wrote this exclusive little, um, yeah, I don't know, condolences, and he printed that in the paper, saying that he artistically thought of Stalin the night before she committed suicide. So maybe Stalin had this idea that, you know, he was a bit of a prophet that he could see in the future, right. this, all these kind of stories about that. But, yeah, I don't know. We don't know how he survived it. It might have been completely randomly because, you know, terror is just about being random. Nobody knows and understands why one is sent to a camp and the other not. The loyal people who were completely yeah. loyal were mowed down and, yeah. and, and Pasternak survived. Um, but I think the, there was some kind of connection, you know, connection there, um, invisible. Yeah. Uh, we'll never fully understand it, but he allowed him to live. And I think it was when, his when he saw his name on a list, um, he recited a little of uh, what Pasternak had translated okay. um, yeah. Yeah. and said, um, and Stalin loved literature. I mean, mm -hmm. he he read so much. He had allegedly twenty thousand books. You know, he read all the day. So, from the CIA's point of view, this was about showing up Russia by saying, "Look, here's a book that you can't even access. It's written by a great author in your own country," mm -hmm. and publishing it elsewhere to show them up in that sense. Yes. So there was that element, the embarrassment, and um, why, and uh, have people wonder why their own government will not allow them to read this. Um, and I think the second element with the book program generally, um, not just with this book, was that as you allow people to read about these new and interesting ideas, they challenge the official ideology and, um, and they wanted to do that. They had no sense, they knew this was a long game, this was a long war, they knew the walls weren't going to come tumbling down because people read novels, but what they wanted was something that was corrosive um, of the official ideas. So how did they go about getting copies into this, into this country? Into the Soviet oh, Union? Yeah, yeah. Yes. well... well they had two basic mechanisms. Um, one was when Soviet visitors came to the West, wherever they were, they had agents of influence who, throughout the West who would just simply hand books to Russians or other Soviet citizens. And then when Western tourists went to um, visit the Soviet Union, whether from the US or England or Western Europe, um, they would give them two or three books. Um, and say, when you get there, just give this book to someone you meet who seems friendly or nice or whatever. Obviously, some of, of this would go wrong. Yeah, but it was a kind of unwritten law that you always brought stuff into. I mean, I remember that even. You always brought stuff in, mm. in Maria Callas and books and whatever. And but there was the youth festivals as well. I yes. mean, these, these huge festivals where lots of youth came and they just, you know, it was a book market, basically. Yes, yeah. They just, you know, gave books, please, you know, bring it back. Mm. I had a woman write to me who said, I went, visited, I was a Russian language student at Indiana University in the 70s. And we went on an organized tour, like 30 or 40 students. She said, before we left at Indiana, we were brought into a room full of Russian books. Everyone was told to take three or four. Put them in your suitcase, take them. Yeah, it's Give them away. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my own professor, I mean, he bought in, not our copy, not the CIA copy, but he bought just every time he went there by train. He just, 
you know, to yeah. some Chivagos. There's stories of people splitting the books up uh, to make them less easy to find. Right. That was a mistake the CIA made with the first edition. I mean, they made a beautiful first edition hardback cover, but it was way too big, too bulky, too heavy. Um, so with the second edition, they made it much lighter um, paperback, Bible stock paper in one and two volumes. And um, so people could stuff it in there, hide it in the suitcase, put it in their suit pocket. Mm. Um, Just in the pocket. Yeah, yeah I mean, one of the reasons, yes, that people ripped off the covers of the Mouton book was because it was too big. Yes, and at the World's Fair, there's stories of just there being covers yes. everywhere. Yeah. I mean, that was a big event for the spread of this book. How, how did they do that specific uh, operation? Um, I think, I mean, we know that they, um, they initially wanted to create the proofs in New York, take them to Europe and have them published. They, they ran into difficulty with that and they turned to the Dutch intelligence service who arranged the Mouton printing. From the very beginning, Brussels was their target because there were so many Soviet visitors, 16,000 visas for over the course of the six-month fair. Um, the Vatican Pavilion already had a group of Russians who were handing out Russian literature, so this was an ideal place to put the book. Um, and I think no, they were actually handing out all kinds of oh, like yeah. Bibles and religious literature. Mm -hmm. So it was quite strange that there was literature, you know, but with special religious elements. They could, and they lured people in and say, "Okay, do you want you? We've got these free books. Are you interested?" And the Soviet tourists were a little, you know, skeptical. They just wanted to go in to see Rodin. They had yes. this Rodin. And then they thought, well, just have a look. And yeah. that's the way they, uh, yeah, they brought it in and smuggled it in. What was Pasternak's reaction to finding his own book coming back into his country? Well, um, we do not know if he knew that the CIA, of course, he didn't know that the CIA was behind it. But he saw, actually, one of the CIA copies. We found that out just not so long ago. Right. And, uh, but he wasn't very happy with it because there were lots of typos in it. It was from a, a quite uncorrected. a sloppy, uncorrected mm -hmm. manuscript. So mm -hmm. he wasn't so happy. And the later editions of the Michigan editions, these were corrected. So, right. But, but he, he, was was, he was dead by that. So he never got to see a, a finished a, a version? Finished no. version. No. Yeah. You had access to previously unpublished CIA files. Yes. Um, how did that come about? How difficult was it to get access to those? Mm. So difficult. Um, <laughs> so when we decided we would do this, we understood that, you know, one of the major outstanding questions was exactly what the CIA did or did not do, even though its role had long been speculated on, there was, they had never acknowledged it. So in '09, I wrote a memo to the CIA saying, um, could you search for these records and you know, I'm interested in doing a book, and they said, no, we're not interested in cooperating. Um, so at that point, you know, there's a large community of retired CIA officers in the Washington area. Um, they're often very good sources for people in my business, in the national security reporting business, because they know what's going on. They're still in contact with people inside. People inside are polygraph, people outside obviously are not. Um, so we get to know them. Mm. I spoke to a few of them. They then went and spoke to the historians and the, in the Historical Collections Division of CIA. They became interested. 
they said they would look. They started to look and found these documents. They obviously made their own internal decisions and decided they could be released. Um, all of that took three years. They were mailed, sent regular mail um, to my home. What's that like? It was kind of bizarre. <laughs> you know, That's we're incredible. done. Yeah. Did you know before they were going to send them that they were going to send you these? Yeah, things? no, yeah. they told me. Okay. They, at a certain okay. point in uh, 2011, we knew it was going to happen. Right. It, but it was a question of, they have this long, slow internal declassification process. The documents are redacted. Anyone with an interest in a document internally gets to examine it before it's released. Okay. The different divisions. Um, so it is slow. Yeah. It's very slow. How did it feel when you found out that you, they were going to send them to you? Terrific. Terrific, yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. So what did we find, what did you find out from these documents that wasn't previously known for definite? Well, when I wrote, when I wrote my, my first articles on Zhivago, I could prove by the, the Dutch Secret Service that the CIA was involved. But I only, I thought, you know, they might have been, they might have been just sponsors. I, we didn't know that. But from the documents, when I got them in, in the summer of 2012, it was instantly clear that they were deeply, deeply involved. Mm -hmm. You know, they decided it, they got the, the, the manuscript on, on film from MI6, and they just did the whole operation. And that was new to me, and yeah. I felt really happy when I saw that, yeah. And yeah. They're, they're all in the second edition in yeah, the paperback. Yeah, that was also, yeah. I mean, we, it had long been rumored that um, they were involved with the Dutch Mouton book, but the paperback miniature edition that appeared in 59, for a long, long time, people believed that that was the work of a Russian emigre group. Okay. And, and it was in fact printed in Washington, and they just stuck, they invented the name of a publisher in Paris, yeah. put it on, and, uh, and then the emigre group, and they were funding these emigre groups, of course, yeah. an emigre group had a press conference in Europe saying, well, we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone was like, oh, they did it. Yeah. That was yeah. a big surprise, because I also believed, you know, it was Société d'édition mondiale. Everybody always, you know, who spoke about it said, oh, that's the French edition. And, you know, it was a huge surprise that was printed in Langley. Well, what? Not in Langley, but in, <laughs> in, in Washington. In Washington. The, That's right. amazing, isn't they it? They weren't in Langley in, yeah. in 59. Okay. They didn't okay. move till the 60s. Okay. Um, if you were an average citizen in Soviet Russia, how difficult or easy would it be to get hold of one of these contraband books, if you like? Well, at that time, very hard, because mm. I found one of the copies in... Um, in the Moscow State Library, and it said that it came there, it landed there in 1959, and it was under embargo. Officially, it could be read by party officials and PhD students, but I interviewed um, one of the old librarians, and she told me a story that um, in the 70s, there was this Slovenian translator who wanted to get a copy. He said, I need to, to get the original. And it was completely embargoed, so even a Slovenian. Wow. So nobody read this copy, although it said, you know, it could be read by, by certain people. Right. But, and I also, you know, I asked people around me, um, because I work in Russia, and in that early time, nobody read it. It started, you know, at the end of the 60s, the 70s, and even in, I heard somebody t uh, uh, telling me that, 
um, in the 80s or the end of the 70s, you know, even school teachers gave Samizdat, you know, uh, Dr. Chivagos to their pupils to read it. So at that time, it was already semi-official, you yeah. know, you could, could read it. But, but some it, did circulate. I mean, there were reports that you could buy it yeah. on the black market. But these are, you know, relatively small press runs. So yeah. the Mouton edition is a thousand copies. The paperback is nine thousand copies. So we're not talking that many copies, really. Anyway. Right. So to what extent can we see the success of this operation as being caused by the Soviet response to it, to banning books, to all this kind of thing? Do you think the fact that they didn't let it be published in the first place led to this whole success? I'm not sure, Peter. Well. I think that if they would have, uh, you know, um, published an abridged or censored copy, um, you might have had this problem. There would have been an uncensored copy abroad and a censored one in Russia. That would have been interesting as well, mm. you know. So that, there would have been a chance yes. also for a scandal. Yeah. If you could travel back somehow in time to the period, um, and I asked someone involved in all of this a question. What would the question be? I thought about it, and you know, there's one person I would have loved to interview, and that's the second son of Pasternak. Okay. He's a kind of mysterious person. He was a silent witness, you could say, so he was the son of Zina. And Pasternak loved him a lot. And um, uh, his first son, wrote a lot of memoirs. We know his view on, on the case and on his dad, but this second son, we don't know anything, and he lived, you know, um, in the dacha. So he, he saw it all, but he never said something. Okay. So I'm so curious what he would have said. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Peter? What would you... Well, I, obviously, I, I'd love to have spent uh, one of those Sunday afternoons at Pasternak's table with all of these people, just... Uh, just watching it, mm, yeah, you know, um, and talk to him about, you know, his reflection on it all. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. I think he felt uh, that it was all worth it. Mm. Um, yeah. I think he knew the novel was this global success. I mean, he had visitors from Uruguay. Uh, wanting to see him and tell him that, you know, fashionable young women in um, the capital there ha had the book, you know, under their arms. I mean, I think for him that was just immensely gratifying. Do you think there's any lessons to be drawn from this period of history and this story about present-day Russia? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just wrote on that. Well, yeah, well, living in Russia, there's a lot of new laws, you know, um, put in laws that are actually um, telling you what to do and not. And um, one of these new laws is a blasphemy law. And um, so there's no swearing anymore in, in films and entertainment. That's the last law where it's actually coming into effect on the 1st of July. And um, Pasternak's book and, and Dr. Givago was a plea for, for uh, artistic freedom you know, and um, he's actually saying, well, you know, no matter who you are, you can um, just be yourself and you can, you can have a dissident view. And that's something in nowadays Russia that's coming under a lot of pressure. Mm. What new impression of this period of, kind of global history would you like readers to leave this, this book with? I think something more eternal than specific, which is what she just 
talked about the power of literature, the power of, of words, the power of um, alternative or dissident views to challenge um, official beliefs, official ideology is something we still need. Mm. Um, I mean, others may um, and have spoken about the CIA and what it does now versus what it does then, but you know, the ultimate lesson here is the power of the individual is, is what Pasternak did and stood for. That was Matt Elton in conversation with Peter Finn and Petra Cuvet. The Zhivago Affair, the Kremlin, the CIA and the battle over a forbidden book is out now, published by Harville Secker in the UK and Pantheon in the US. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A number of the Elgin marbles are to be moved for the first time in more than half a century to form the centrepiece of a major new show on ancient Greece, the British Museum has revealed. The controversial sculptures were taken from Greece by Lord Elgin in the early 19th century, sparking an argument between the two countries that continues to this day. Since 1962, the marbles have been housed in the museum's Duveen galleries. They will now be relocated to another part of the museum to feature in next spring's exhibition on ancient Greece, which will examine the Greek body beautiful. In other news, a painting revealed to be a Van Dyck portrait on the BBC's Antiques Roadshow has failed to sell at auction. 
The old master painting, which was bought by a Derbyshire priest from an antique shop in Cheshire for £400 in 1992, had been expected to fetch up to £500,000 at the Christie's sale. It was identified as a Van Dyke after roadshow presenter Fiona Bruce spotted it during filming and thought it might be genuine, BBC News reports. After a lengthy restoration process, it was verified as authentic by Dr Christopher Brown, one of the world's leading authorities on Van Dyke. Meanwhile, the creators of Wallace and Gromit have made an animated film about the First World War. Named Flight of the Stories, the Ardman animation film depicts personal letters and stories from soldiers who lost their lives in France. The film, which combines 2D illustrations and 3D CGI animation, has been created to mark the opening of new galleries at London's Imperial War Museum. The revamped museum, which includes new First World War galleries and a transformed atrium space, will reopen on the 19th of July. You can watch the Ardman animation video by visiting the Imperial War Museum website. Thank you, Emma. Now, last month, we began to broadcast a series of extracts of interviews with First World War veterans conducted by the Imperial War Museum that accompany a new series in the magazine called Our First World War. For the second instalment, we move forwards to July 1914, when Franz Ferdinand was dead and war was beginning to emerge on the horizon. First off, let's hear from Dolly Shepherd, a recently retired parachutist who recalled a conversation she had had with her aunt and a German friend of the family. I had a, a boy who was in the yeomanry and auntie had a friend because my aunt had married a German. You see, like Queen Victoria had married a German. And the, 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 my boyfriend was there and, and auntie was there and this German friend of hers was there. And uh, she said, uh, there's talk of war. Do you think we'll have a war? So he said, oh, he said, yes, yes, yes. Oh, we shall, we shall um, um, capture your country. You will all be Germans. Well, of course, Auntie had married a German. You see, Queen Victoria, had because when the police afterwards, she had to register, you see, because she'd married a German. And when the police said to her, why did you marry a German? She said, well, why did Queen Victoria marry a German? You see, it was just that. But they, he had some inkling, only then, you see. In July 1914, Britain decided to show off its naval strength with a huge fleet review at Spithead. One person who witnessed the event was George Wainford, who had joined the Royal Navy two years earlier. And that was a Spithead view, and all the ships, the Royal Navy were there, that was... And you were still aboard the Crescent? I was aboard Crescent then, and... Uh, well, you, you couldn't see them between Isle of Wight and Portsmouth and Caves and all. You could... A mass of ships, battleships, battle cruisers, cruisers, heavy cruisers, light cruisers, destroyers, torpedo boats, subs, auxiliary vessels. Oh, it's amazing to see them everywhere. And uh, the idea was, after the review, we was all going to... Uh, all the reservists would be sent back home. See, the reservists had been called up for the review. They were going to be packed all home, finished, and we were due for, for our leave. But when August came, or the end of July, the beginning of August, the order came, the fleet would remain mobilised 
all leaves stopped. And that was it, because the wall broke out on the fourth. Just going back to the Spithead review, what, what sort of feelings did it give you when you saw this? Um, oh, a feeling of pride to think that I was a, a, a seaman in such a great big armada of ships as there was there. Apparently, it had never been a, a review like it. It was the largest and most important I've ever had. It was enormous the number of ships there. That same month, another George, George Ashurst, had to attend an annual summer training camp in Tenby. George was a reservist, which meant he was likely to be called up in the event of war. Here, he recalls some shooting practice he underwent at the camp. So, then you went back to your job normally. What happened? Did you go for a camp in July 1940? Yes. Well? Where did you go that time? I was called up in July 1940. 14. 1914. And we went to Tenby, South Wales. I have a photograph of us there. And uh, that was where I fired with another sergeant out of the battalion for Law Kitchener's Cup. Of course, we didn't win out. You know, there were some damn good shots. But I was one, and he was the other, that represented our battalion. Lord Kitchener's Cup, it was called. How was the competition organised? Oh, well, it it was on the beach, you know, then. Not like it is now, of course. The firing range was along the beach and you were, of course you had rapid firing, you had uh, silhouette firing, you know, heads bobbing up and going down and, and rapid firing, distance firing, say 600 yards, accumulative firing, like a few of you firing on one spot, you see, you had all that sort of thing. And, uh, and they added up your points, did they? Added up your points, yes. Because this sergeant, he was a beggar. If he didn't have a pint in him, he couldn't eat you from here. It was true, he couldn't. And he was a brilliant shot, you know. Yes, better than me, you know. Because he was an old soldier from India, do you see? And uh, he would be 50-odd. I said, yes, he was 50-odd. And uh, he was a regular soldier. And he was only a little stiff fellow, but by God, he could shoot all right. No doubt about that. But he was allowed to go in the canteen and have a couple of pints of beer before he went shooting. He was allowed to go in and have it, yes. How did you practice your rapid fire? Because that was something they they often talk about in the pre-war army. Ah, well, it breaks down. It breaks down so often. I mean, you load ten. Ten to one, they don't work. If you load ten in your magazine, it's ten to one, they don't work. Although they should do, you know. Five, a clip of five, and then another clip of five. To all ten, you know. But as you keep going, this one gets wrong somewhere. What sort of things would go wrong? Well, the spring inside. They had springs inside like that, you know. And they wouldn't... Uh, Float up straight, you see. So what rate of fire a minute do you reckon you could get? Well, it was 15 rounds a minute was rapid fire. But you don't think they could do that? No, no. no. Well, they wanted a bit of doing. 15 well, rounds a minute. 
What would you fire at yourself, then? How do you mean? How many would you manage a minute? Well, you know, I never tried. <laughs> I never tried, because it, that wasn't tried often. Firing at that speed, it was never tried as a practice, like in the army. No, I never knew it. I think it was a weight they considered it a waste of ammunition. That was George Ashurst. And if you'd like to read more from our First World War veterans, then you'll find a regular feature in each issue of BBC History magazine, including in our iPad edition, where you'll also get to hear sound clips. Currently on sale is our July 2014 edition, and in this month's magazine, we look inside the mind of Richard III, we explore some myths of the Wild West, we find out why the Battle of Bannockburn became so integral to Scottish history, and we discover the story of the Victorian letter scammers, and you can, of course, get hold of our July issue in all good news agents and digitally. OK, so that's almost all for this week. As always, get in touch with your views at podcast at historyextra.com and we will read out some of your messages in the future. And do make sure to check out our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, quizzes, galleries, articles and, of course, hundreds of episodes of this podcast going back to 2007. Next week, we will be joined by Paddy Ashdown to discuss the French resistance in the Second World War, while Catherine Ferry will be guiding us through Britain's interwar holiday boom. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and produced by Jack Fletcher. 